Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to St. Michael's in the Morning, a podcast series encompassing everything from sermons and services to special audio presentations, brought to you by St. Michael's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. For more information or to make a donation to St. Michael's, please visit www.st-michaels.org. Welcome, everyone, to episode 34 of Calm Words for Anxious Hearts, and today's episode is part two in a two-part series on worship, the title of which is Lift Up Your Hearts, Worship, Joy, and Mission. And fair warning, if you did not listen to last week's episode, what I say today will not make any sense, and so please go back and listen to episode 33. And to just recap what was discussed last week, we said a few things. Number one, that we are all searching for meaning, and in that search for meaning, we all lift up our heart to someone or something we think can give our life meaning or significance. Number two, we said that Christian worship is deeply concerned with this human quest for meaning, Number three, that every search for meaning has to wrestle with three basic questions. The questions being, number one, who are we? Number two, what is wrong? Number three, what is the solution? Number four, we said that the main way we answer these questions is by telling stories. Number five, we said the Christian story is rooted in the story of Israel. And then finally, number six, we said that the story of the people of Israel was all about the Passover in the book of Exodus, their freedom from Egypt into the promised land, but that also for Jews in Jesus' day, the Exodus wasn't just a past event, but something that the Jews expected God to do again. Okay, so we're all caught up. So let's start this week by placing ourselves in Jesus' world and asking the question, how did Jews in Jesus' day, how would they have answered those three questions? Let's start with number one, who are we? They would have said, we are God's chosen people, his special treasure. We are the insiders to the promises of God. Second question, what is wrong? The answer, Rome. Their pagan practices. They keep us from living a life of freedom in the land that God promised to our ancestors. If God would destroy the Romans, or if they could just all conveniently drop dead, everything would be okay and the problem would be solved. And then finally, what is the solution? A Messiah anointed by God to deal with the problem of Rome and lead a new exodus by slaughtering the Romans so that we can finally be free and live alone in the land that God has wanted to give us all along. Now, obviously, we are painting with a pretty broad brush here. Certainly, one could find Jews in Jesus' day who may not have put it in those terms, but I think many did, at least the people that Jesus interacted with as recorded in the New Testament. That was their story at the time. We are the insiders, the problem is Rome, and the solution is land, a Messiah to lead the charge against the Roman army so that we can take back what should have been ours all along. That's the scene that Jesus, a devout Jew, came upon when he was baptized in the River Jordan by John the Baptist 
and began to preach about the kingdom of God. And the reason Jesus was so controversial was because he openly challenged this worldview to a group of religious people who said, we are insiders Jesus embraced people traditionally deemed as outsiders to a group that said the problem was Rome. Jesus responded by saying, no, it's not. The problem is sin. The problem is the hardness of heart that infects all of humanity, both Jews and Romans. And because Jesus so radically reframed the problem, He also reframed the solution. The Messiah will not slaughter Rome. The Messiah will save Rome. And anyone else, for that matter, with eyes to see and ears to hear what God is about to do. The Messiah isn't going to conquer. He's going to be conquered. The Messiah will lead the new exodus, but it's not going to look like anything we were expecting or could have imagined. And so the reason this backstory is important is because whenever we Christians share in the Eucharistic meal, we tell the story of our exodus. Like the Israelites before us, we too have a story of freedom, not from the power of Egypt, but from the power of sin. And we believe that our exodus is the final exodus, that the first exodus from Egypt was a shadow of the one accomplished by Jesus, the exodus from sin and death. Our belief is that the Red Sea of death was split with the cross and that Jesus now leads his people through to the kingdom of God, which is the ultimate promised land. That's what we celebrate week after week. Every time we receive the bread or drink the wine, we share in this new Passover meal instituted by Jesus himself. And so let's look at how Luke describes the institution of what is commonly called the Lord's Supper. The setting is Jerusalem, and this reading takes place the night before Jesus dies. A reading from the Gospel of Luke. When the hour for the Passover meal came, Jesus took his place at the table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Here ends the reading. Now, let's go ahead and unpack this reading. First, this last supper takes place at the Passover meal. As a devout Jew, Jesus is supposed to be looking back to the first exodus, to the first covenant, but instead, he looks forward. Jesus seems to be looking forward to a new exodus that is about to take place, to a new covenant that he himself will bring about. Second, like in the first Passover, blood will be shed, but it won't be blood of a lamb. 
it'll be the blood of the lamb. And like in the first Passover, judgment will take place, but it won't be on the firstborn of Egypt. It will be on the firstborn of God. This is my body given for you. This is my blood given for you. As Jesus gathers with his disciples in that upper room, he tells them that like in the first Passover, blood will be shed, which will protect them and save them and mark them out as distinct. Finally, and I will quote Jesus directly here, do this in remembrance of me. In other words, remember this event. Pay close attention to what's about to happen. Tell the story of what is about to take place over and over again to your children and your children's children. Allow this story, this happening, this event to define you as my people. That is essentially what Jesus told his disciples the night before he died. And that is why week after week, our chief act of worship as Christians, our primary festival of celebration is the Eucharist, a celebration that retells the story of how God acted through Jesus to deliver us from the bondage of sin and to bring us to the kingdom of God, the ultimate promised land. Now, with all that said, why don't we revisit those three questions again? How do Christians answer these ultimate questions week in and week out? Question number one, who are we? From Eucharistic Prayer C in the Book of Common Prayer, From the primal elements you brought us forth and blessed us with memory, reason, and skill. You made us the rulers of creation. From Eucharistic Prayer B, In your infinite love you made us for yourself. In other words, we're not pawns in a determinist game. We're not God, nor are we a part of God, and we're not a biological mishap or fundamentally defined by scientific or sociological categories. No, we're humans, made in the image of our Creator, and there are certain responsibilities and privileges that come with that status. Question number two, okay, well, if that's true, what's wrong? Quoting Eucharistic Prayer C again, We turned against you and betrayed your trust, and we turned against one another. From Eucharistic Prayer A, we have fallen into sin and become subject to evil and death. In other words, God's image bearers have rebelled against the very God that created them. A cosmic dislocation now exists between the creator and the creation, and because of that, the entire world is out of tune with its created intention. Well, that is pretty bad. That is a problem. And so question number three, what is the solution? And sticking with Eucharistic Prayer C, In the fullness of time, you sent your Son, born of a woman, to open for us the way of freedom and peace. Or, if you prefer, right one, our Heavenly Father of thy tender mercy does give thine only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made there by his one oblation of himself once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. In other words, the solution isn't progress or humanity pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. The solution is that the Creator the one against whom we have rebelled, has acted, 
is acting and will act out of his own grace and mercy to deal with the weight of evil set up by human rebellion and will bring his world through Jesus to the end for which it was made so that one day it can resonate fully with God's own presence and glory. Week after week, we come together as followers of Jesus. We share a meal and answer these ultimate questions in a very particular way. And that is what Christian Eucharistic worship is all about. It's about finding meaning, not in any God or in spirituality, but in this God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in this story, the God that's acted is acting and will act to restore our world and restore our lives to what God intended them to be. And since worship and meaning go hand in hand, Christian Eucharistic worship is about finding meaning in this story in particular, as opposed to some other story. And because we believe that this story gives meaning to life, we lift up our hearts to the Lord to the Lord that makes this story a reality, to the Lord that tells us no matter what happens to you, what sickness you suffer, what sin you commit, what pain you encounter, no matter what happens to you, this story now defines who you are. That is the Lord we lift up our hearts to in worship every single Sunday. And friends, during COVID, we can do that from home, or we can do that here at St. Michael's, but we do it together. Lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord. Now that being said, Christian Eucharistic worship is not merely an end in itself. We don't tell and retell the story of our salvation just to make ourselves feel better. In the words of Eucharistic Prayer C, deliver us from the presumption of coming to this table for solace only, and not for strength, for pardon only, and not for renewal. In other words, every time we tell and retell the story of Jesus' death and resurrection in an odd way, a sacramental way, we enter into that story for strength and renewal. We become a part of that story. We find fresh joy in the story we are telling, and we come to see that our mission as a church is to share the story of Jesus. And so with the time I have left, I want to shift gears a little and talk about how worship's natural response is mission and how it is only in and through mission that we find the fullness of joy that God intends us to have. Because when the Eucharistic service comes to an end, we don't just go forth into the world. No, we go forth in the name of Christ. We go in peace to love and serve the Lord. We go forth into the world rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. In other words, we go forth with a mission. And so the question is, what does our mission look like, and how is that mission connected to Christian Eucharistic worship? Well, every time we tell and retell the story of Jesus' death and resurrection by sharing in the Eucharistic feast, In an odd way, a sacramental way, we enter into that story. Jesus' story becomes our own. What happens to Jesus happens to us. What happens to the bread happens to us. Now let me explain that. To quote Luke's account of the Last Supper once more, Jesus took a loaf of bread 
And when he had given thanks, he broke that bread and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. I see three things happening here. First, Jesus takes the bread. Second, he breaks it. Third, he gives the bread to his disciples as food for their souls. The bread is taken. The bread is broken. The bread is given out as food. And of course, this is exactly what happens to Jesus in his own life. Jesus is taken. The Roman authorities take him and nail him to a cross. He's taken by the will of his Father. He's taken by the leading of the Spirit. He's taken by a vision of the kingdom of God and set apart to establish that kingdom here on earth. In his own words, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's what I mean when I say that Jesus is taken. Second, Jesus is broken. His heart is broken by the sin and betrayal and faithlessness that surround him. His body is broken and bruised as he's nailed to a cross. His spirit is broken as he cries out to his father only to hear silence. That's what I mean when I say that Jesus is broken. Third, Jesus is given to the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that all who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world that he gave. Jesus is taken. Jesus is broken. Jesus is given to the world. Eucharistic worship takes lots of courage, lots of courage, because whether we realize it or not, every time we approach God's altar and hold out our hands and receive the bread, we accept our mission as the people of God. In a mysterious way, we ask God for Jesus' story to become our own story. What happens to Jesus will happen to us. What happens to the bread will happen to us. First, God will take us right where we are. It doesn't matter how sinful we are, how many shameful secrets we have, or how unworthy we feel. God will take us. Like Peter, we can fall at the Lord's feet and scream, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. But God's answer will always be no. He will not leave us. He doesn't invite us to follow him. He takes us and tells us to follow him. Like Paul, we can work against the Lord, perhaps even persecuting him. But if we decide to approach God's altar and hold out our hands and ask that Jesus' story becomes our story, God will take us, blind us as he did Paul, and then give us new eyes to see the kingdom of God. When we boldly approach the throne of grace, God will take us. Second, God will break us. He will break us of our pride. He will break us of our self-sufficiency. He will break us of our idols, of whatever it is in our life other than him that we tend to lift up our hearts to because we think it's going to give meaning to our life. God will break us. Finally, God will give us to the world as food. In the same way that Jesus laid down his life for us, he will teach us to lay down our life for the world. As Jesus' story becomes our own, we'll become what Paul calls a living sacrifice. And because living sacrifices are always trying to crawl off the altar, God will take us again, break us again, and then give us as food for the world that God loves. 
over time, this process of being taken, broken, and given out will help us understand what Jesus meant when he said, You are the light of the world. Let your light shine so that others may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. We'll come to see that our mission is tied up with God's mission to restore all things to himself and that in an odd way, a sacramental way, God is using us to help heal God's world. In other words, God takes the very rebels that have caused this mess in the first place. He breaks those rebels and then gives them to the world with the message that Jesus is Lord of all, with the message that God has acted, is acting, and will act to deal with the problem of sin And that through Jesus, the world is being brought to that place where it will one day fully resonate with the presence and glory of God. That is the story that we who feast at Jesus' table find ourselves in. That is the story we are invited to give our life meaning and significance. Now, it is impossible to lift up our hearts to the Lord in service of God's mission and not to feel joy because as Jesus' story starts becoming our own story, we then experience the Spirit of God and the fruit of God's Spirit is joy. It is only whenever we routinely lift up our hearts to something else, when we rely on money or social status or physical beauty or climbing the corporate ladder or keeping our reputation in check, thinking that these things will make life meaningful apart from God. It's only when we lift our hearts to something else that we find ourselves joyless because idols always disappoint. They have no power to save us. And so the last thing I want to say is this. Worship has nothing to do with duty. It's about delight. We don't worship because it's our job We worship because it is our joy. I'm not saying that Eucharistic worship is going to answer all our questions or take away all our fears or doubts. There's always the question of why. Why are the fires still ravaging the West Coast? Why have so many people died from COVID? Why do I feel so lonely at times? Worship is not about answering all of those questions. Paul himself observed long ago, we know only in part, but then we'll know fully as we've been fully known. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Eucharistic worship is not about doing away with the mystery of faith. It's not about certainty. On the contrary, it's about entering the mystery of our faith. It's about proclaiming the mystery of our faith. It's about finding our life, about finding meaning in the right story, so that when our life comes to an end and we get ready to see the Lord face to face, we too can say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. From now on there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Let us pray. Hasten, O Father, the coming of thy kingdom, and grant that we, thy servants who now live by faith, may with joy 
Behold thy Son at his coming in glorious majesty, even Jesus Christ, our only mediator and advocate. Amen.